Hello everyone, Daz here and welcome to American Civil War and UK History Podcast. This presentation is available as a video on YouTube and as a podcast from wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, I've got my words muddled up then, didn't I? And uh, remember, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and we're also part, I am also part of the Unfiltered Historian team, which I'm very, very pleased to be part of. Um, you will find all the relevant links in the description below via Linktree, including the Unfiltered Historian's Facebook page. So joining me today is the Unfiltered Historian, Tyler McGraw. Welcome, Tyler. Aaron, thank you so much for having me today, man. Uh, this is my first time on this podcast, and I'm really, really excited to talk about some Mud March stuff with you, man. This is a, a fun little topic. It's not the most exciting thing the Army of the Potomac does, or even Burnside does, because Burnside likes to blow big holes in the ground and likes to charge up hills, and we all like to crap on him for it, even though it's not necessarily warranted. And I hope to maybe explain a little bit why we shouldn't always look to crap on Burnside today. I like that. So again, as Tyler said, today's discussion is the Mud March, which takes place in January of 1863, after the Army of the Potomac's heavy defeat at Fredericksburg. And so we're following on from Fredericksburg Live, so it sort of fits into the, you know, what we was doing at Fredericksburg. If you've seen the videos, go and have a look. They're on Facebook. Um, there is, they're, they're over both pages, but most of it's shared between the two pages. But before we get on to today's topic, I want to talk a little bit about you, Tyler, because you was an intern for the Park Service. Mm -hmm. And also, I want to know how you got involved in the Civil War to start off with. And before you do start, I just want to um, share my screen. Okay. Tell us a little bit about how you got into the Civil War and your time with the Park Service, please, Tyler. Sure thing. And you're showing two of the visitor centers I actually worked at there um, in the slide here and the wonderful Arrowhead. Uh, so in the winter of 27, good Lord, now it's 2018, the winter, no, no, it was winter of 2017. I had moved back to Fredericksburg and decided that you know what? Let me restart again. 2015. Wow. It's, see, I'm sitting here trying to cycle through the years. I've been involved in the Civil War for that long. Um, in 2015, I decided I wanted to volunteer at the park, um, and that's because I've had a pretty big obsession with the Civil War. And of course, before I went to the park, it wasn't full-blown like it is today. I, I still had my love for it, and I'd find myself venturing to battlefields and um, reading one of the books we're actually going to talk about today quite frequently and extensively. Um, I, I had an obsession since I was a young boy when my father gifted me a copy of the Centennial Handbook of the Civil War. And being that I live in Fredericksburg, of course, uh, this Fredericksburg is a major, major battle and most people may not think so, but it is. It's a very major battle of the Civil War and it's talked about frequently. Uh, so, of course, there's uh, pictures and um, some excerpts about the battles of Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville Wilderness in Spotsylvania in the Centennial Book. And I came across uh, so a picture of some of the dead from the Harris Farm engagement in Spotsylvania. And it kind of floored me a little bit as a young, impressionable mind. I was like, well, what, why, how could somebody do this to another person? How could this happen in my hometown? And that was pretty much history from there. I got obsessed. I kept following it. I found out I had ancestors that dug me even further into the Civil War. And then I went into um, an internship in the winter of 2015 at the Park Service, um, working pretty much every single day, nine to five. And I had two of my favorite historians as mentors when I started out. 
and, and to be able to be under their tutelage and learn from them and see firsthand what I could do to improve as an interpreter or historian, it, all that comes from them. So I do want to, of course, shout and give huge thanks to Greg Mertz and Frank O'Reilly for their upbringing and helping me become the historian that I am today. And just giving me the opportunity to be on that front line and serve at two of the battlefields that are so close to home to me and just very, 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 very important to the entire story of the Civil War in general. So really cool story how I got into it, which is again, it was a picture in a book and I had questions and I was able to answer those questions by pretty much 15 years worth of searching and research and studying and then launching into a park service internship was giving walking tours all the time. So 35 minutes at a time, sometimes four or five times a day. And that helped, I think, build too with the, the narration of giving Civil War tours. It, it was nerve wracking at first to get up in front of a group of people and hope that I gave off a good tour. And then of course, when your mentors are giving you your tour audits, that makes it even more nerve wracking. Let me tell you. So, uh, but that's it. That's really how I got into it. in my park service career, it was uh, two years of an internship or equal to two years of an internship. So in that two years, you, like you said, you learned a lot there, didn't you? And also, also um, when I was there in Fredericksburg, you uh, pointed out a couple of places where you lived. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So I, I also had an opportunity to live in the Fredericksburg National Cemetery uh, for the spring portion of 2016. And then the summer portion of 2016, I actually spent my internship at Chancellorsville. So I lived at the Chancellorsville battlefield in one of the Mission 66 houses that were out on the battlefield that were designed for interns. There's a law enforcement office next door and then there's another quarters for interns. So even being able to live on the battlefield, I think Fredericksburg took the cake because you're, you're living in the cemetery and the sunken roads. The, the curtain you open in your window, the first thing you see is the sunken road. That still today is just one of the coolest things I think I've ever had the opportunity to do. Cause it's just, who gets to say every morning that they wake up on the sunken road? Exactly. And you lived right over the road from the battlefield calf. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Battlefield. I call it the calf now too. I yeah, forgot I that mean, it's even it's called the, battlefield restaurant. Beautiful place to eat guys. If, it is. if you're ever in Fredericksburg, go and give it a look. Okay. So again, let's get on to the subject today. So Absolutely. the uh, mud march, but first of all, can you give us a quick overview of the battle of Fredericksburg and then the situation Ambrose Burnside and the Army of the Potomac find themselves in after the Battle of Fredericksburg, please, Tyler. Sure thing. So Fredericksburg takes place on December 13th, 1862. Now, that's just the main battle that we see and talk about where the Union Army is charging up the stone wall. Burnside sends wave after wave after wave up Marie's Heights. And we also have the breakthrough uh, from George Meade going through the lines of Maxie Gregg over there in the southern end of the battlefield, or known as Prospect Hill Slaughter Pen Farm. Very famous part of the battle that kind of often gets overlooked because of Murray's Heights. But even before these assaults happen, we have to kind of talk about why Fredericksburg happens. Uh, very short story on that. Burnside is given command of the Army of the Potomac just after George McClellan is relieved, and Burnside sets his sights on the town of Fredericksburg. Initially, uh, Lincoln favors a strike down the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, but we know that the railroad is a one-track railroad, so that's not really viable. And even the likes of Herman Haupt come to tell him, no, this isn't going to work, Lincoln. We need to figure out a better plan, and Burnside has presented a great plan. That is to take Fredericksburg. Fredericksburg is separated by the Rappahannock River, and the Rappahannock River is really rapid. It's got a horrible undertow. It's a very unpredictable river. And this is also happening right at the beginning of winter. So 
similar to today, it is snowing. Again, it stopped for a little bit and then it's picked up again. Again, one of those unpredictable parts of Virginia. The joke is if you don't like the weather here, give it about five minutes and it'll change. So the weather is a huge factor into this campaign because if the Rappahannock River receives a lot of rain or if this area receives a lot of snowfall, that'll change the way the river is. It's going to make the river very high at one point so it's not affordable anymore or it could one day seem that it's affordable and you can get a bulk of your army across Mind you, it does take a long time to get an army across a river, even on pontoon boats uh, and bridges. It, it, it's not just a we're across we're in, we've taken Fredericksburg. So if when Burnside does make his way down to Fredericksburg on the 17th of November, he's actually in Falmouth, which is just on the other side of the Rappahannock in Stafford County. It looks like there's a few fordable points. And some officers will actually go to Burnside and ask permission to ford their, their men across the river. And Burnside will decline that. Uh, I think he knows very well what that river is like. He wants to bring the, the whole entire army across pretty much as one full force to strike at Lee. Now, the goal is initially to catch Bobby Lee by surprise and bring the Union Army in, capture Fredericksburg, so that there's an open road to Richmond. Doesn't work that way. Why doesn't it work that way? Well, a gentleman, and I shouldn't even say gentleman, but gentleman Henry Halleck decides that he is going to hamper the Burnside pontoon plant. Pontoon boats are sitting in Berlin, Maryland, or just right outside of Harper's Ferry. And they sit there a long time because the orders are virtually placed on a desk and more papers are placed on top of the orders. So with the bridges not being in Burnside's possession at the time, can't get your army across. And with that delay, Lee knows what's happening on the other side of the river. He's very familiar with the situation. So what he's going to do is fortify the town with as much troops as he can get his hands on, thus spoiling Burnside's plan. So the early morning hours of December 11th, the Union Army will start constructing their pontoon bridges. They get about a quarter to a halfway across, and the Confederates under William Barksdale open a murderous fire on the engineers in the town portion where two bridge locations are going to be there's actually three bridges that are going to span this area we have the middle crossing and the upper crossing that run directly into town and we actually have the lower crossing that's going to be closer to the southern end of the battlefield there uh, the two crossings facing the town were very heavily contested which resulted in the Union Army sending troops over in pontoon boats which by the way were not in any way shape or form meant to hold troops and push them across the river. They're like a shoebox almost. And we're stuffing all these troops in this shoebox shaped boat. And now we're having them go cross into the, the town of Fredericksburg. So this is also the first riverine crossing under fire. Um, they, they establish a beachhead. They are able to combat some of the Confederates. The very bloody fighting happens in the town itself, uh, street by street, house by house, block by block, if you will, uh, resulting in the 17th Mississippi and the latter of the Mississippians that are down there, including I think a Floridian regiment withdrawing back to the heights at the end of the day. So those Confederates held that town significantly long time against the Union troops that are trying to afford it. Well, it takes two days for the army to get across and on the 13th, the rest is history. They lead those bloody assaults to the heights, get beaten back wave after wave, seven separate assaults, feudal assaults, try to attack the heights to no avail. There's a brief glimmer of success on the Southern end under Meade again, when he breaks through the lines of Confederate General Maxie Gregg. But due to poor communication, poor Union generalship, 
the attack does not hold. Meade is not able to get reinforcements in order to continue this assault or even just hold it alone. And the battle is over. Thus, the armies retreat to their separate areas. The Confederates will stay in the heights surrounding Fredericksburg, continuing to fortify them, mind you. And I want you guys to keep that in mind, that even right after the battle, the Confederates set work to fortifying the heights around the town. And Burnside goes back to Falmouth and the surrounding areas across the Rappahannock to ruminate on what just happened at Fredericksburg, to take stock of what just happened at Fredericksburg, and to formulate a new plan. So can I just ask, what is Burnside's state of mind after this? Because, like you said, it is slaughter, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Br- go ahead. From what I understand he wants to take the Ninth Corps himself, doesn't he? He and, does. And attack. So He feels so awfully about this that he, he does. He volunteers his own Ninth Corps, and he will lead them themselves across and to the heights to try to take them. Uh, of course, some officers are going to talk him out of that. It's just ludicrous. Burnside, you saw what happened. There's seven separate assaults that just got destroyed. And now we're going to take the heights under. No, it's not going to work. But again, Burnside does have this plan that he's going to take the Night Corps across the next day, but it doesn't happen. He's thankfully talked out of it, and more lives, I think, are saved because of that conversation. And it's not necessarily an idiotic idea by any means, but it's not the brightest idea that Burnside's had since he's been in command. It's one of those ones where I think he felt so awful about what happened to his men and his whole plan just kind of collapsing in front of his eyes as he watched those assaults from Chatham's. He just knew it was, it was, it was a folly and it wasn't really, it really wasn't worth following up and, I think it's, it, it says a lot about Burnside's character that he wanted to personally lead the next charge up the heights because I think he knew it was a ruined plan that, you know, political happenings really kind of tied into the failure of Fredericksburg. Yeah. So what sort of pressure is he on afterwards, though, from, from Lincoln and, the, and, you know, the top brass in Washington? So right after the Battle of Fredericksburg, there is some mounting political pressure because we do know that uh, right after the Battle of Antietam in September of 1862, Lincoln issues the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. The, the Emancipation Proclamation itself isn't going to come out until January 1st, 1863, but that's the basis of all of this pressure right now that's really folding out in the banks of Fredericksburg on the opposite side of the Rappahannock. We know that Lincoln is going to issue this document on the first day of January. But the reason Fredericksburg happened in a winter campaign happened initially is because this document has absolutely no weight in the states which are in rebellion without a military victory. So the idea behind Fredericksburg was to get that military victory solidified to give that document some legitimacy. Well, that victory didn't happen. In fact, the opposite, it was a disastrous defeat for the Army of the Potomac, and Lincoln himself coins it an accident. But what does that do to morale? Oh, whoops, I just killed a bunch of you guys. I'm sorry. That was an accident. And that's layman's terms, of course, but I mean, looking at it in that regard, this isn't something that is going to bode well with the troops. In fact, desertion runs on a high-scale level, and this pressure from the political offices in Washington are still mounting because now we're getting closer and closer and closer to January 1st. This day needs to bear with it, at least in the following days, a military victory. And Burnside, obviously being the commander of the Army of the Potomac at the time, is going to be the one that Lincoln looks to for that victory. So behind the Emancipation Proclamation, 
trying to follow up and maybe have better results after Fredericksburg. In fact, I think right in the, um, right around Christmas or uh, just after Burnside sends a plan to Lincoln to attack Fredericksburg again, which is absolutely denied. And the reason it's denied is because Lincoln isn't really given the parameters of the ideology behind the attack. Lincoln doesn't know what Burnside wants to do. He doesn't know what positions, what troop dispositions are going to happen, where, who's going to attack where. None of this is sent to him. This is just an idea that Burnside has. So now he's going to have to take that whole plan, scrap that, and figure out what would be the next course of action. So what is Burnside's idea for an offensive plan at first? So at first, again, it, and it's not really extensive. We don't have extensive knowledge either as to what Burnside's first plan is. We just know it consisted of attacking Fredericksburg. Now, there, there could be some different positions he wants to assault. But remember, right when I was talking about right after Fredericksburg, Confederates are fortifying the heights around Fredericksburg. So the heights he initially assaulted are now 10 times as fortified as they were on the 13th of December. So especially, and you, you have driven with me on Lee Drive. Mm-hmm. Do you remember those trenches that we saw on the Fredericksburg side where Howison yeah. Hill was? I mean, yeah. you're, not, you're not taking those positions. No, gosh, no. no. And they're, they're up there too. I mean, the topography on those side, the heights of Fredericksburg are just astronomical for an army to try and scale to assault. So I think Burnside realizes that too after his plan is pretty much shut down by Lincoln and now has to come up with another idea. He has to not attack Lee from the front, but he needs to get around Lee. If he can get around Lee, move on that flank, he might be able to catch him by surprise like he initially wanted to do. And so what he's going to look at is having to cross the Rappahannock River or try to cross the Rappahannock River at a different location, west of Fredericksburg rather than at Fredericksburg, rather than going down to Skinker's Neck, which was initially a plan of uh, Burnside's in the formulative idea or the formulative days of Fredericksburg's planning battle. I call it battle one, December 13th. Uh, That was an idea behind Burnside, but history will tell us three U.S. ships actually try to navigate up the Rappahannock River just towards Skinker's Neck and will get bombarded in a very long artillery I'd call it a duel between Confederate river batteries and the three U.S. ships. It's the USS Jacob Bell, the USS Anacostia, and the USS Caratuck. In fact, few of the shells will actually strike home at on the Caratuck, damn near sinking it and sending it back down the Rappahannock. So he's not going to attempt that anymore. He knows, and uh, the Rappahannock definitely widens a little bit past Skinker's neck. It's not just this little. 400 to 500 foot crossing it's getting deeper it's getting wider it's not easy to maneuver troops across like we'll see in 1864 when grant builds that almost mile-long pontoon across james and gets his troops across it's a little different here that's not going to be able to happen the resources aren't there it's winter and the confederates are all over the place okay so this new plan that he's got about moving west and, and that, I understand it gets leaked to President Lincoln by two of his subordinates from the Sixth Corps. And uh, I'll just bring this up. So they are John Newton, Brigadier General John mm-hmm. Newton, and Brigadier General John Coltrane, is that? John Coltrane. Yeah, Coltrane. Yep. So, um, yeah, explain that to us. 
So these two go into the Washington offices, go into see Lincoln and explain that Burnside's going to kill us all in the, in the like, easiest sense of the terms. And we need to do something about it. They're concerned. They, they saw what happened at Fredericksburg. And this is in Burnside's brightest time in the Army. I think this is where there can be some criticism to Burnside. He knows darn well what happened at Fredericksburg. And you think that attacking again is going to make up for what you did in December? It's not. Because the result, if not even more so disastrous, is going to be the result that you go through when you send your men back into Fredericksburg. So these two are, in their minds, they're saving the Army of the Potomac, in fact, maybe even saving the country, but they're also completely and totally insubordinate in my mind. I'm like, you're undermining your commander. You're going behind his back to tattletale on him. Of course, today there is differences in that with whistleblowing. and that, it, Look at it as a whistleblowing incident, but it, I don't know. Is Burnside's plan really solid? I don't have the information to tell you Burnside had a great plan. Burnside's Fredericksburg plan was sound it was perfect i don't think it was if these two are going into the washington offices to prevent this from happening there obviously was something wrong with it and logically speaking just drawing conclusions it seems like burnside's trying to do the same exact plan he had in 62 in december 62 it seems like he wants to assault fredericksburg again but the the city of fredericksburg is just held rampantly by confederates it's not a viable option Getting around Lee, though, is the best course of attack. I think Burnside doesn't really have that sink in until after his plans are foiled by Coltrane and Newton there. So I understand as well that Burnside actually ends up going to the White House himself. And he wants these two generals court-martialed because he's that angry about it. Oh, yeah. And it was a personal blow to him to have two people underneath his command pretty much go and try to undermine not the only ones are they he 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 gets this through his whole reign as as commander doesn't he he does hooker is one of them too we'll talk about hooker in a little bit but there's definitely some of that with joseph hooker as well and also from what i understand he actually offers to resign his command of the army and leave the army completely for, for, from this you know he's that upset about it yeah. um so what is the overall feeling towards Burnside by his subordinates and the army at this stage then? Well, it's obviously quite toxic, isn't it? So, I mean, he was mentioning Hooker there. So yeah. Yeah, Hooker thwarted him, as Lincoln says later in a letter to him. Um, Hooker definitely was outspoken, a very outspoken critic on Burnside. I think a lot of the troops felt the same way too. Desertion runs to a very high rate in the months after the Fredericksburg battle and um, leading up to what would be known as the mud march. Uh, Desertion is very toxic for the army and very bad for the army because you're now losing the numbers. It's bleeding. It's, it's not a full strong fighting force like it was. It's also cold and miserable and food is in short supply. A disease is running rampant through the camps of the army of the Potomac. So not only the officer is not maybe trustworthy of their commander anymore, but the average soldier is just miserable. It's, it's winter. It's not a great time to be campaigning. And they're pretty much active. I mean, they're in their camps. They have winter camps set up. But they're definitely not at a crazy rest. They're prepared to be in another battle soon. They know that there isn't one inevitably coming. And I think... The morale is a big thing. The morale of the Army of the Potomac was 
probably at an all-time low from the winter of 62 to 63. And that's going to impact the outcome of the mud march too. Not only would some of the elements we talk about be the driving factor on the why this, this march fails or this whole campaign fails, but I think the morale doesn't really do much to help it either. Yeah. So Burnside doesn't resign and there is a new plan. Mm-hmm. And uh, so let's talk about the new plan. Absolutely. So I appreciate the map. That's a perfect map too. Um, this really does illustrate what Burnside wants to do. So we see Fredericksburg there in the middle of the map. You can see the RFMP railroad there, a very important and vital lifeline to both armies, if you will. But let's keep note of these arrows here. What are they pointing to? Well, this is the route of March Burnside's going to want to take. And if any of you have studied Chancellorsville before, Mm-hmm. This looks very similar to what happens looks later. Very similar to Hooker's plan mm-hmm. in eighteen sixty-three. When I first looked at this map the other day, I went, "Oh my goodness, it's the same plan." It is, and the only thing that's a little different is that you don't have a uh, a staving off force in Fredericksburg. You don't have a Union force crossing a bridge into Fredericksburg to try and just basically stymie any assault happening or keep the confederates busy and if you look at the confederates they're in that a a very long line of protection here running all the way out towards chancellorsville even and these are the heights around Fredericksburg, so they are holding high ground burnside's going to try and move around lee like i was uh, trying to get at earlier and maybe hint at if you will his idea is to get around his flank and then start attacking him piecemeal. Uh, he's going to use two Fords that are on the Rappahannock and the Rapidan. The U.S. Ford and Banks Ford are going to be his crossing sites. Now, Fredericksburg in the winter is, again, notoriously wet with either snow or rain. The roads to which he wants to use, some roads are non-existent. There aren't anything. It's woodland. It's, it's mud. It's, it's really bad terrain. And this is all going to just not bode well for them as they're trying to move and position themselves in order to get one at Lee and roll up his flank. So the idea is to move the army around Lee's flank and surprise him in the vicinity of Chancellorsville, which is just about 13 miles to the west of Fredericksburg. One thing that is going to be kind of new with the army too at this point is committing a move in the dead of winter like this. I mean, the plan is set to be carried out on the 20th of January, but a horrible month to try it another military campaign. Cause again, the Rappahannock is dependent on the weather. Therefore your army is dependent on the weather to successfully execute this campaign. Um, also, I was going to ask, um, explain the logistics of moving an army. And uh, oh, yeah. I must point out at this point that obviously the Army of the Potomac is massive. I know they've had their losses, but you're talking, what, 120,000 there or thereabouts? There. Yeah. So it's not a good idea, like you said, moving around in these, these roads at this time of year, is it? Anyway, but not at all. I mean, in the 19th century alone, you haven't got. You know, I mean, you're moving wagons and horses and men around, aren't you? So how hard is that for, you know, an army of this size? 
it's extremely difficult. And I do appreciate the photographs here because this really helps to illustrate one of the logistical errors that I think Burnside doesn't see happening. Wagons and mules, the army mule, the army wagons. So you have to bring your supplies with you in order for your army to be able to successfully execute a campaign. And the primary mode of transportation for these supplies are wagons pulled by mules. Thousands and thousands and thousands of wagons. They're going to have to bring bridging materials for some of the forts. Because again, we're talking about the weather. So now you're also going to have to bring all your pontoon equipment and try to drag that across. And just even forming the lines to bring supplies along the banks of the Rappahannock is just a very daring move in itself. Because so many things can go wrong. It's not just a quick, let's take 120,000 men and march them along the banks and have them cross when they want to cross. It takes a long time to get those armies moving. You have to supply your men with the uh, three days rations, marching rations, and the amount of ammunition they're going to need to fill their pockets and their, their cap boxes. And there, there's just so much behind even getting the troops alone and the infantry regiments and the artillery having to drag them along with all their horses and the caissons and the equipment. Some, uh, some even have traveling forges to repair what happens in the field if one of their cannons break or if they need to do some quick repairs or having to bring these traveling forges with them. Those take quite a few wagons to carry. The, the artillery, I mean, what, six horses to a gun and caisson almost. It's, that's a lot of horses to bring with you. So between the, the wagons the mules, the horses, the pontoon bridges, the artillery, the traveling forges, and the infantry themselves, moving an army of this size is a logistical problem in the dead of winter. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to what actually does happen then. So they go, they go along with this plan that Burnside's come up with, this new one. So explain what does go wrong for Burnside here. It's very simple, actually, and it's rain mm -hmm. when they start off on january 20th it's it's slow going at it but then it starts to rain and i'm not talking just a a light shower we're talking a torrential downpour on the army of the potomac as they start moving now the roads in virginia at the time unfortunately didn't have asphalt they didn't have gravel they were dirt roads well, in a torrential downpour like that, and a bunch of dirt is being kicked up by men marching on it consistently all day, and wagons starting ruts in the road, the existing ruts already from wagons that have traveled some of these roads to begin with, turns into nothing but a mire of mud. Some regiments don't even get two miles across before they are literally just stuck in their positions. Now, this is going to serve as the failure point in the mud march, if you will. With, with the rain and the mud now, this, in theory, has Burnside's army virtually stuck. Completely. So one thing I have, uh, I've been doing some research for this talk that we're doing today. I have with me a fantastic memoir uh, edited by John Hennessy. The memoir is of Thomas H. Mann, who serves with the 18th Massachusetts. And it's a little lengthy, so I hope you guys can bear with me with this. But I think I like to sum up the, the battles as much as I can, but I, I do like to turn it over to our soldiers that actually fought in these and served in these battles or these campaigns to tell us what it was like to be there, 
what it was like to march in this mud, what it was like to sort of maybe get your hopes up that there's going to be a successful campaign and then just be completely crushed by the fact that you're now stuck dealing with Confederates that can visibly see you across the river, mind you. Some troops are being taunted by these Confederates with signs that say Burnside stuck in the mud, made famous by the Ken Burns documentary back in the 90s. But uh, and one thing Thomas Mann does right, and I think that really uh, makes these accounts here so incredible, is that he uses other people's quotes in his own memoirs to give you almost a different viewpoint. So again, I did say they're a little, a little lengthy, but the Sergeant of the 18th gives us his, his rundown on what it's like. So I'm going to talk about what Thomas Mann does lastly, but I want to start with the higher ups commanding, and then I'll finish today's quoting with, of course, my favorite, Emory Upton, because the 121st New York, oh man, they have it. If not out of anyone, probably the worst in the mud parts. They start off first, so you know what that means. They're the last off the field. Well, sure. Wait for it. All right. The winter season in Virginia is very properly called the rainy season. The snowfall here in New England is the rainfall there. And the frost of winter that penetrates and freezes the ground here frequently one, two, and even three feet deep, there seldom gets as many inches. Besides, the sacred soil is very peculiar soil. It isn't like any other soil, at least any Massachusetts soil. The clay of Virginia is the most adhesive, the most tenaciously sticky that ever was, and will get pasty like dough with the very little wetting. When in this condition, anything coming in contact with it becomes more entirely besmeared than would be believed by one who had ever experienced it's peculiar property of stickiness. Dude, I'm going to tell you what. If I have never read a great account of Virginia mud, this guy puts like yep. a Henry David Thoreau. I love it. I think it's, right. it's awesome. I think it's actually amazing. Oh, and it gets better because now we're going to talk about getting stuck in it and his, his idea of getting stuck. So this sergeant is just like an eloquent Massachusetts writer. And the fantastic stuff. A shoe or boot once sunk in its soft depth requires a surprising amount of muscle to extract it. And when extracted, it is a sight that is calculated to inspire remarks that are forcible, if not elegant. All these peculiarities were well known to the men who composed the Army of the Potomac. They had many wrestle with it and knew or thought they knew all about it. Alas, how easy a thing it is to be deceived. There were degrees to the compound that had not been tested and depths that have never been sounded as the near future was soon to teach them. In the afternoon of what had been a very bright and pleasant January morning, January 17th, the bugles sounded the assemble and we got the order to prepare for marching at once with several days rations and an unheard of number of rounds in our cartridge boxes. Tents came down in a hurry that had cost us a good deal of hard labor to prepare for we had expected that we were in camp for the winter and had fixed up accordingly with quite elaborate log houses with chimneys and fireplaces built in of sticks laid cob house fashion and thickly cemented with mud of which we always had enough and overall canvas was stretched for roofing. But all that went for nothing. The order was to strike tents and down they came with many remarks as an accompaniment that sounded like more blamed fool business. 
New pastures for Father Abraham's pet lambs. For the boys were given to making remarks on occasions that didn't meet their unqualified approval. It was near the middle of the afternoon, three days later, before we started on our January campaign. The road was full of men, artillery, baggage, and ammunition trains, and all that pertains to a moving army. So much so that we had very little progress. Most of the afternoon being passed in waiting for what was in front of us to get out of the way was the road. So that night found us only two and a half miles from the old camp. Meanwhile, the clerk of the weather had been getting in his fine work. And by the time we filed out of the road and went into camp close by, the ominous, dismal-looking clouds began to dribble. We pitched our little tents as best we could, lighted fires and cooked our coffee and ate our primitive meal, filled our pipes and smoked in solemn silence over the situation. Before our evening smoke round the campfire was fairly concluded, the dribble became a deluge and we crawled under our little shelters, made everything as snug as possible, and composed our eyes and limbs to sleep. There is something fascinating in such a bivouac, notwithstanding its discomforts, the weird blackness of night now and again lit up by the fitful flickering of the campfires, the wind sighing in solemn cadence through the treetops and pattering of the rain upon the frail canvas under which we lie. And with all the sense of weakness and littleness as the dense pall of darkness over and around, it draws its impenetrable curtain and gloomy night reigns over the sleeping thousands. Oh, yes, there is a side to grim war that is not all stern reality. There are times when the imagination runs rampant and the poor tired body forgets its weariness, its aches and its pains, while the mind contemplates the mysterious and hidden by which we are surrounded and loses itself in the vast unknown. And so the night passed with the storm king abroad and the morning showed that the pattering rain of beginning had developed into the pelting pitiless downpour that defied our best efforts at keeping dry. And now our troops began to move along the road and take up the line of march again. And what a crowd they were. A soldier's skin is supposed to be waterproof and shed rain like a duck's back, but this beat everything and penetrated everything. Of course, we got our marching orders too, and joined the procession. By this time, the road was a slight to behold. With every added footstep, either a man or beast, the mud took on a somewhat different consistency got just a little thinner and penetrated down a little further while the artillery and wagon trains sunk deeper and deeper. The teamsters shouted and applied their whips with many an expletive. The marching column of infantry as it floundered on shouted out taunts and jibes at the standard wagoneers and artillery drivers, glad to see those whom they were considered as generally having a soft snap. In such a predicament, while the wheels of all of them sank down to clean the hands of the hubs, and no amount of shouting profanity would induce them to make another revolution. I actually saw a mule team so utterly discouraged that after being unhitched from the wagons, they refused to budge and either stood knee deep in the mud or lay down in it. And it still rained. It came down in sheets and it came down in continuous streams. There wasn't any let up. It just kept right at it and improved every moment. The progress made the second day was about the same as the first it being quite impossible to get warm. We were ordered into camp, having made but little more than two miles, perhaps five miles from the old camp, and still it rained just as hard as ever. The road by this time had become a raging sea of mud, quite thin and liquid on top, but growing thicker the further one sank in it. 
Night came on, and still no signs of a let-up. We were near the Rappahannock, and the Johnnies were on the other bank. Their pickets on the opposite side caught on to the situation as they painted on a board in large letters, Burnside stuck in the mud. This they set up conspicuously where the Yanks could see it, and thus the famous campaign of General Burnside was named by the rebels themselves. It proved to be a name that stuck and was always referred to by that title. Awesome. That is an amazing account. Thank you. And uh, I have one more for whenever we're ready for it. It's a little bit shorter than that one. But yeah, uh, go, for it. go for it. All right. So this is the corporal of the 18th Massachusetts. Now, mind you, that um, the 18th Massachusetts was pretty heavily involved in the mud march, as you can tell, and probably got a lot of the worst conditions of the mud march since they were able to make an advanced movement from their camp before a lot of the other lines were able to. So we're going to get a lot of interesting accounts from these soldiers. So here's what the corporal thinks of the mud march. As we were drawn up in line, ready to move about one o'clock on Tuesday, which was January 20th, an order was read from General Burnside informing us that we were about to meet the enemy again, face to face, that their army on the Rappahannock had been weakened by our recent successes in North Carolina and the Southwest. And now is the time to strike the death blow of the rebellion in Virginia. This order was received in perfect silence, not a cheer, not a response except the suppressed undertone muttering such as another political move, more blundering, the army won't fight. How different was the reception of an order? Any order read at the head of the 18th from McClellan's hand. We were soon on the move in the direction of Hartwood Church, while every man was growling and snarling or else glum and stuffy. No matter what or where the movement was headed for, any disinterested party, could have gathered from the demeanor of the men that nothing but defeat would result. The thinking volunteers wondered at the hardihood of a man who dared undertake to lead such a disgruntled force. Before we had marched two miles, it commenced to rain, and it was apparent to a number two private in the rear rank that we should get stuck in the mud. Did not get three miles from camp before it was night, and we went into camp in a pine forest where every blessed mother's son of the 18th found wood ticks sticking all over them in the morning. Boiling coffee with green wood during a drenching rain is not fun, and trying to find rest during a long winter's night with every thread of clothing wringing wet is discouraging, and waking up from a fitful sleep to find one's body one-third submerged in a puddle of water is a forceful reminder of rheumatism, but such is the soldier's lot. Next morning, we packed up in the rain and after wringing all the water possible from blankets and clothing, the moisture that would not wring added many pounds to the shoulder pack. We tried to move forward, but did not get a foot until afternoon because the roads were already blocked with artillery and supply trains. Then we managed by jerks and stops and starts to hitch along a couple of miles when, the second night overtaking us, we camped in the woods again. And on the morning of the 22nd, it was found that the army was stationary with its artillery strung all around the country to the hubs in the mud and settling deeper every hour. The supply trains were also immovable and the pontoon train, which was near the river, was under the command of General Lee instead of General Burnside, as the former had covered it with his guns. The 18th had succeeded in marching five miles during two days, and it had been two as hard days marching as were ever put in. Standing in the marching column, loaded with from 60 to 80 pounds of baggage and equipments, everything wet as water can make it is more exasperating and fatiguing than a good swinging march. 
The uncertainty whether the halt of this column will be for one minute or 40 keeps the soldier on his feet, shifting his load from one shoulder to the other. If we conclude to unsling knapsacks, to rest aching soldier, shoulders, and stretch ourselves upon the ground to relieve aching legs, there may be only time to draw one sigh when attention, company, forward, march brings the column to its feet, and on we go for a few hundred yards to have the same tactics repeated again and again. In the course of the day, we were informed that the troops would be allowed to find their way back to camp in the best possible way, but the artillery and supply trains must go first. So the roads were toroid. The men took the places of horses and mules, pried and pulled guns, caissons, crackers, and ammunition wagons upon the log roads. The pontoons were left behind. And it is reported that General Burnside, or General Lee sent his compliments to General Burnside, accompanied by the tender of 20,000 picked men to help us out of the mud. It is currently reported that our Corps has lost 3,000 men by desertion during the past two weeks, 300 having taken that kind of leave from one regiment. The 18th has lost less than a dozen by desertion, but hundreds of horses and mules have gone under. I crawled into the log hut, left in camp near Falmouth on the 20th, toward night on the 25th, pretty well discouraged with the whole blamed business. Wow, so they are really fed up now. Done. You just can't imagine, can you? You've just been slaughtered and then you just got, you know, yeah. So, again... The whole campaign is a complete failure for Burns. Completely. I'm sorry? Does he ever recover from this? Not in the sense of him staying in command of the army. In fact, there are now, as we talked about, uh, Coltrane and Newton going to Washington to complain. I think there's even more of an outcry for Burnside to not be in command of the army anymore. And Hooker, again, goes to thwarting Burnside. In fact, this leads Burnside to bring a letter to Lincoln saying, it's either these guys or it's me. Take your pick. Well, Lincoln takes his pick. Hmm. Bye, Burnside. And Burnside he- is relieved of command of the Army of the Potomac, and he is replaced by the gentleman who's thwarting him, General Joseph Hooker. General Joseph Hooker is a very interesting character, too. When Hooker takes command of this demoralized army, Hooker's given the uh, army kind of in spite of something he says. Or, or Lincoln overhears, that the military needed a military dictatorship. So in Lincoln's letter appointing Hooker to command of the Army of the Potomac, Hooker will receive the letter from Lincoln almost as a father would to a son. And Lincoln basically says, I've heard it that you believe there should be a dictatorship. What I ask from you is to give us victories. I will risk the dictatorship. Hooker thinks highly of himself, probably more than anybody thinks of Hooker. He thinks more highly of himself than anyone. I think this also gives Hooker the uh, ability to fail and not point fingers at anybody else. He has to be accountable for his own actions now. But Hooker does some really interesting stuff for the Army to close this out today and just to finish up with the mud march, because as bad as this was, Hooker does restore faith in the Army of the Potomac, which... If you look at it, even though Chancellorsville may have been quite a demoralizing thing, Hooker made the army that was there at Gettysburg. That's it's really Hooker's army. Meade's only in command of it for three days, two days. When they go to Gettysburg and when the battle is actually fought, Hooker does some reorganization. So the grand divisions are gone back down to the core split system. He institutes core badges. At the beginning of the, this, the podcast here, 
Daz, you had the the core badge there, the the sixth core badge, which is awesome because that's something Hooker really implements in the armies. Yeah. This gives the men a feeling of a spree day core. They belong to something. They have something that they can now feel like they are a part of. Hooker is going to institute something called bread ovens. That's huge. Hard tax sucks. There is no other way to put it. I'm sure you've had it, so you understand. It is not a great staple. It is a staple, but it's not a good one. But fresh bread being baked all the time? Count me in. Some of the officers, almost said officers, some of the officers actually have oysters and champagne brought into the camps. There's some morale raising for them. And also, a simple nickname can really do a lot for morale. Hooker's known as Fighting Joe Hooker, an accidental nickname, too. All because of a forgotten hyphenation, he's now Fighting Joe Hooker. Hooker actually loathes this, this title, but his men don't. Hooker's going to fight. We have a fighting general. We don't call it Fighting General Burnside by any means. When we think of Burnside, technically, we all think of Mud, the Crater, and Fredericksburg. Mm-hmm. We don't look at his... Highlights in North Carolina for some reason, because his North Carolina expedition was fantastic. But there's two different animals when we're talking about here between Hooker and Burnside. Hooker's got the subrequit fighting Joe Hooker. That rings with the army. But it's what Hooker does in April and May of 63. That really seals Hooker's own fate for his command. And now he has his chance to upstage Burnside. And pull off a victory but spoiler alert it doesn't happen mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. a, that is for another day ladies and gentlemen absolutely well that was amazing so a couple of things i'd like to discuss before we wrap up the podcast sure. and uh, i want to give a few shout outs to a few of the books that i used in my research and then you can tell everyone again that book that you just read from absolutely do is i should leave a link at the bottom of the thing so Three of the main ones I use for this, and obviously, that so the three maps you saw on the screen, if you're watching this on YouTube, if you're on the podcast and you won't have seen it, if you are listening via podcast, please pop over to the YouTube channel and have a look. But the maps are from, um, it's called The Maps of Fredericksburg by Bradley M. Godfrey. Now, he's done quite a few of these books, hasn't he, Tyler? Yes, he has. And, of course, no biasness here. <laughs> this is probably my favorite of all, but he does this wonderful Atlas series of different battles that have taken place in the United Civil War, United States Civil War. Um, the best one that I think, again, just because I live in Fredericksburg, would be the Fredericksburg and Wilderness ones because it helps to really picture some of the confusing aspects of the battles. But this is the case for all of them. You have the maps of Antietam, maps of Gettysburg, currently working on the maps of Shiloh. We have the maps of Spotsylvania, Cold Harbor coming out. They're fantastic. And in my mind, if you're going to study these battlefields, they're necessities. So Gottfried is an astounding writer and, and a great map maker too. The cartography in here is fantastic. Yeah. And so I have this one as well because I used yeah. all three similar. So I'll, I'll pull the book out when you talk about it. I'll have the actual hardback to show it as well. Okay, cool. And the other one was uh, Seizing Destiny. There's there's some bits in there about the Mud March. That is actually about Valley Forge. But that is, that is so this book, because I haven't actually read this book the whole way through. Um, so this book is about that hooker stage, is it? Sure it is. And it, it really, and what I love about it is it's very logistically based. It, it's the, the details behind the army. And, you know, we talked about the wagons. We talked about the ammunition trains. We talked about feeding an army, the spirit of corps. Um, all of that comes from the, the Valley Forge of the army of the Potomac. 
so this is um, another fantastic book. And I think, again, I highly recommend reading that. So if you ever find yourself over at the Savas Beattie website, or if you're at Fredericksburg Battlefield, or if you find yourself on Amazon, last case scenario, of course, pick this up. If you want some reading that's really relevant to this time of year. And it's, and it's by one of my favorite, um, part, well, one of my favorite authors, Chris Mikowski. And, Absolutely. Uh, obviously, uh, Albert Connor Jr. So mm-hmm. um, the last one is uh, Frank O'Reilly's book, The Fredericksburg Campaign. Most of you probably have heard of this book. It's a, it's a monster book. but My favorite book on Fredericksburg. It's amazing. And, it, mm-hmm. you know, if you want something on the whole campaign, you definitely need to go and get this one in your library, don't you, Tyler? You do. Absolutely. And um, Mr. O'Reilly or Frank O'Reilly was one of my mentors when I was at the Park Service. So, uh, of course, and I've read his book even before I made it to the Park Service and even had the pleasure of meeting him. And I met him in my training. So you can imagine how nervous I was in training there, sitting in front of one of my role models growing up. And then to know that he wrote this book to be there with Frank, that it was incredible. And uh, again, I've read this multiple times. Uh, I, I do once, probably once a year, maybe sometimes even twice a year, I go through this book, but it is, it's just that good. And to me, there's so much military information here. There's so much maneuvers and battle tactics in here that you learn something new every time you read it. You come to a different conclusion about something every time you read it. So it is, it's one of those ones that's worth rereading multiple times. Highly and, recommend Frank's book. And a quick shout out for Frank as well, because he does actually still work for the, uh, the, mm-hmm. the park service. He does. But is it both uh, Chancellorsville and Fredericksburg, or is it? Yeah, and you could arguably say all the sites because the uh, the way that park works, there are many different aspects to the Fredericksburg Spotsylvania National Military Park. We have sites that are Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, Wilderness, Spotsylvania, Chatham Manor, and the Stonewall Jackson Death Site. Elwood Manor too. So you have multiple locations across this park that you could work at. Now I have. A few books that I used, if you would like me to share some of the ones that I used during Please. the... All right. So the first one, of course, the quotes you guys heard are from Fighting with the 18th Massachusetts Memoir of Thomas Mann, edited by John Hennessy, who also used to be the chief historian of the Fredericksburg National Military Park. So we have him as well. Two of these, another member working for the park right now, one of my good friends, Noel Harrison, wrote a great two-volume set on the Civil War sites of Fredericksburg. They are invaluable pieces of information. If you have a chance to find these, they're not printed anymore, but I'm telling you how important these two books are to the history behind Fredericksburg. They detail all the sites. Noel has done superlative research on these places and continues to do so. And Noel's also a huge supporter of Unfiltered and ACW as well. So quick shout out to Noel, just for the the, thank you for being a part of this. And the, the stuff he sends us on our emails and our, yeah. our phone. Oh man, it's amazing. And I can't ever get enough of it. So no, thank you for that. And then last but not least, a very interesting book that I liked is uh, Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg by George Rebel. It's another great book. There's a whole chapter called mud at the end of this that really details the, the human interest area or the political ramifications of the mud march. Uh, so again, if you want to read a, a really good people history or a social history more so, or political history, if you will, uh, Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg is another really good account on the Battle of Fredericksburg. It actually came out pretty close to the time Frank's book came out. So if you want the military stuff, the, the nitty gritty good stuff, that's all Frank. But if you just want a general overview of like sociological, political, Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg by George Rabel's here go to. And that's what I used for this talk here. I'm going through these. 
of course, just some of the, and also background knowledge of the area of growing up here in Fredericksburg and seeing and knowing where all these sites are that this took place, I, that just came with the, the talk. I had that ingrained in my head. But of course, it always helps to be able to find these sources and these accounts and read through these. Awesome. So all that's left for me to do is say thank you very much, Tyler, for coming on the podcast and cheers. And it's been an absolute pleasure and I've really enjoyed it. Thank well, you. It is, it is an honor to be able to come on to this one. I was really happy that you had asked me to do this. And I'm, I'm loving it. This is a very welcome place. I like being able to speak to a new audience and to share some of the stories of where I'm from and what happens here in this, okay. this town that can see quite a few battles come to it in the duration of the Civil War. Well, thank you very much. See thank you. you. And we'll see you all of, again very soon. Cheers.